You're listening to Electioneering with Mark Lucas and me, Dominic Mingella. Between us, we've had a hand in campaign films and strategy for centre-left parties in dozens of elections in the UK and beyond. The campaigning for the next general election in the UK has effectively already begun, and between now and polling day, whenever that should be, we bring our presentational perspective to what the parties are doing and what we think they should be doing to win hearts, minds and votes. In this episode, we discuss the Tories' strategy of fighting the next election on culture wars, which they have already begun. How do culture wars work, and why are they so horribly effective? How can the opposition fight back? Is the answer the kabuki drop, or is it the economy, stupid? So, I wanted to talk about culture wars. And so here's the question. What do you call two middle-aged privileged white men sitting in a room agreeing with each other. A podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I don't even know about that, really. I think that's just bollocks. I think that's part of the cultural and, and, <laughs> and is that, apart from being hilarious, <laughs> is, it a, is it part of the culture war? And should we be talking about culture wars? Because, see, I think our brief, and people will accuse us of going immediately off piece given our self-proclaimed brief to think about politics from the presentational point of view which is what we have experience of and we ought to know about but actually I think so much of current politics is actually just presentation it isn't about content or policy at all and you could argue that the culture war brief which the Tories clearly have for themselves more or less openly is, is what politics is nowadays there isn't any more much conversation about and some people bemoan this but there isn't any more much conversation about actual content it's all about the the slogans and the positioning and nothing at all to do with content and you know I think um was it 30p Lee Lee Anderson um who said um well we you know the last 2019 was all about we had three things we had Brexit we had Boris and we had Corbyn that's what won it for us and this time we're going to have none of those. So it'll have to be culture wars and maybe a bit of trans debate, which I think is actually just culture wars. So they're openly saying we haven't got anything other than culture wars to go on. And I, I reckon that's something for us, legitimate for us to, to talk about. How damning of a, of a party that's been in government for 13 years that their record is so awful that they can't point to anything and say, look what we've done that was good. They've got nothing to say, look what, how well we're doing. They can only go on, so they can't go on content at all. They can only go on trying to find wedge issues and trying to divide us so that, you know, you're either, you know, and try and make it that you're either with the common people or you're not. And that's the only way they think they can save themselves from total annihilation. So it seems to me that even just saying, you know, never mind the content and what a culture war actually is, just admitting just those facts. They've been in government for 13 years. They've got nothing to show for it. And all they can do is fight the culture war. End of story. I mean, they're absolutely uh, dead ducks in terms of you know, a, tr- a genuine political force. There's nothing there at all. 
I guess one of the dangers, though, is that you've got the end of uh, the Corbyn era has led Labour to a place of ideological, I don't know what you call it, consolidation, let's say. So, you know, we're getting past anti-Semitism, getting to a place where we're just kind of credible again. And you've got to say that Keir Starmer's done an incredible job on that. But if you think about that's all the Tories have got is culture war, but what has Labour got? Where can Labour move the conversation onto? Because I'm not seeing that either. Do you know what I mean? It's in a way the Tories are dragging us towards it or into it, but Labour's not giving us another place to to place our energies at the moment. And so I think there's two parts, two halves to it in a way. Do you know what I mean? I do. I do. I think it's interesting. Um, I think, look, I think you, uh, can, I do agree. Um, so we are two old boy white men <laughs> making a podcast. But I'm not sure that it's entirely the fault of, you know, I mean, the, the bit that you haven't said is so, you know, what, you know, we wish that there was more in the way of vision and the articulation of vision and, you know, hope and, you know, a future that Labour could be selling us now. Than, than we're currently getting from the Starmer opposition. Um, but I'm not sure that it's entirely their fault. And what's interesting is when I've talked to them, I've found myself, to my amazement, being more conservative than they are, mm. with a small c, about what's possible and what they should be putting forward. And you yourself said, you know, you put stuff forward now. If it's any good, it gets nicked. And if it's not, it gets trashed. But I, I see, I think the problem with culture wars is you can't escape it. You can't say nothing. And then the way, it, particularly if you care about people who are vulnerable. So if you pick the big one at the moment, which is uh, migrants and stop the boats, there's a system in place, there's a structure in the way you do it. You know, So you say, you know, your, your basic aim is to be able to get to a place where you can say the Labour Party and the Lib Dems and the tofu-eating, Guardian-reading, Wokarati are on the side of these bad guys and against, therefore, against the common people, against the British people. And the way you do it is, you first of all, you target those people and cast them as the enemy and you make them, you know, you say they're illegal and you say that they're a drain on public services and they're causing friction in our smaller communities, some of which, as we said last week, actually is true because some communities are small and you can't just, just helicopter in tens and hundreds of people into a small community and not expect that to have an impact. Um, but, you know, you make them illegal by closing off all the other options that they have of coming to the UK. So the only thing they can do is come in on boats and then you can cast them as illegal and you work hard to say they're bad guys. And then you come up with something really, really horrible, like deliberately and outrageously horrible on the fringes of the law. And if it can be ruled illegal, that even helps you. And you say, we've got this piece of legislation which will kick these people in the teeth should they dare to come on a boat to our country and send them off to Rwanda. And let's have a shot of us in Rwanda laughing at the misery that, that will ensue when they get there. And you will provoke people of good heart into saying, I stand with the refugees. Refugees, welcome. And then you can say, see those people? We told you these, these, that they don't care that these refugees are illegal. They don't care that they drain the NHS. They don't care that they come here and live high on, on welfare and benefits. 
So they're not with you. See what they only care about, migrants. See what they've got, the little hashtag that says, I stand, migrants welcome. They only care about those people. They don't care about you. So if you want a government that cares about you and will stand up to nasty migrants, then you've got to vote for us and not them. And clearly, I mean, um, openly and explicitly, they think that works. And making things binary in that way clearly worked. It worked, you know, with Brexit, we, the four of us are against us, and they use the same techniques to sell Brexit, get Brexit done, and, and deliver them an 80-seat majority. And now this time, it is, the world is different, but the, that's how a culture war works. And so if you're Keir Starmer and the opposition team, what do you do, given that you can see that you're being led into a trap, but your job is opposition? You can't say, well, OK, that piece of legislation looks... A, illegal, it contravenes human rights and international agreements. Uh, B, it's horrible. Think about what it could be like for a ch- an unaccompanied child to be sent to Rwanda. I mean, come on. And then you've got to say, this is outrageous. And then either, whether or not you put a hashtag after your tweet, you put yourself into what Liz Truss called the blob, the people who are fighting against common sense and reason and not on the side of the people. And you fall into that. So you, you have no choice but to go for it. And if you start to say, well, let's go nuanced on this, you know, actually, you know, there is a problem, but, you know, let's... You, you, all, all that anyone hears is you're not supporting the, you know, determined efforts to deal with a serious problem here. And, you know, you can see that they created that problem by, in, in this specific instance, by ruling out every other legal way of coming to the UK and forcing people onto small boats, which has the effect of making people feel the situation is not under control because how can there be border checks if people are just basically you know, coming to our islands on, on boats? So people feel unsafe and they want someone to grip it and they're not savvy enough to see that the government provoked this very problem themselves by stopping other ways of coming to the United Kingdom. And so as a as a... An opposition leader, particularly one, and we know this is true, like Starmer, whose strategy has been to definitely not to alienate the Red Wall voter, definitely to try and um, bring together people who would have voted for Brexit and sort of turn their back on Labour they perceive not to be particularly pro-Brexit or even at all pro-Brexit. He doesn't want to alienate those people, so he's, he's really stuck. He's really stuck. What can, he, what can he say? What do you say when there's something outrageous going on? We're poking people in the eye. What are you going to do? Are you Are going to say, that's OK? Or are you going to say, it's not OK? And then be forced into the culture war? You, you end up saying something that's a little bit critical, but not too loudly. And that's kind of where it feels, if we just zoom out a bit, it feels that's where Labour is. They're, you know they don't like any of this stuff. You know in their guts they probably hate it. But they don't want to fall into too much of a trap. So they're sort of grumbling on the sidelines and they look like they've got nothing to say. So it's a fantastically effective place for um, the Tories to put Labour in. And I'm not sure that you know the country is ready and we're in a world where everything is about the headline and the and the three-word slogan. It's really hard to put a nuanced position 
across. And I found myself in other contexts saying to them, you know, so far as they, they're not really listening to me and you, but I found myself saying, you, actually, you need to be really careful what you what you can and can't say, particularly on the in, on, on, in terms of spending commitments. And in my bones, I want them to commit to doing a lot of redistribution. But if I were actually sitting in the shadow cabinet now, I'd be saying let's be super cautious, even maybe even more cautious than they're being, for reasons we can go into. I mean, I've got a couple of thought. God knows if these are of any use at all. But I was actually thinking, like, how do we get to the place of being in a trap? And I think you know we've had a period of polarization in politics, and polarization does suit them in the end, doesn't it? it does suit the Tories more than it suits. Labour ultimately, and it's been proved by the fact they've been in for the last, you know, for the period, the whole period of populism. Um, but populism and polarisation are not the same, and we might be in a period where we've got a polarised environment, we've got two sort of non-populist leaders mm. um, who are trying to both, in a way, appeal to that polarised world in which we're living but also want to feel very kind of mainstream and um, centrist and easygoing. Mm. But we're in such a different environment to the one that we've been in before and we've had sort of centrist and a centrist approach win. And I'm not sure that they've really found a way to adjust to that. So maybe that's something that's in the background of this. But I think the other thing that's in the background of this that bothers me, and, and we should is also the kind of fragmentation and atomization of, of politics. And the culture war is a place where it does become very fragmented and very atomized, and each individual person can have a different view about it. And so even if you could get to a place where you could be a kind of appeal to the Red Wall and to the South and to every part of the country on this issue... And you could find a policy that was appealing, if you like, to everybody and felt right and true. You're still up against it a bit because by definition within the culture war, it is very atomised and very individualised. So it's very hard to hold a coherent position because the whole thing is moving and is very, you know, and very individualised now. So to give you an example, I mean, I don't know, I've had conversations with with trans activists who feel there's a principle at stake, but the principle is a concept, not a fixed point. And I've had conversations with um, radical um, feminists, self-proclaimed radical feminists, who believe that there is a fixed point and that actually their their own individual version of, uh, of the culture war is very clearly articulated and clear to them, but is not entirely clear to other people in the conversation. And so... When we get to a point where we're all having our own definition of this, which is part of what the culture war wants allows, yeah, yeah, and actually wants, yeah, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because if we've all got our own version of this, how the hell do you coalesce people around a, a single idea? Uh, and what is that idea if you could find it? So, I, you know, poor old Starmer. Uh, <laughs> as soon as you're on this ground, I think it's not only the the trap of the kind of politics of it, if you like. It's also, there's a kind of... There are real complex issues in there and you can see merit in the in the arguments on all sides and it's very powerfully 
felt and yeah. really actually very hard to, to know exactly what the right line through it is. And as you say, maybe there isn't a single right line. And certainly you're not going to, you can, you can, you can, you can find your, your point on the, on the curve, so to speak, where you, where you position yourself, but then you're going to piss off a lot of other people. So it is a bit of a hiding to nothing politically, as we've seen with, with, you know, I'm sure it wasn't the only reason that um, Sturgeon departed the stage, but, you know, it didn't do her any good. Yeah, how do you... What do you... Yeah, how do you... How, how do, you, do you navigate this? How it's... do you navigate it? Well, I think, obviously, what you would... What you love, you know, and it does come back a little bit to what we said before last week about um, how some people have the presentational skills and just the natural sort of way of thinking that invites you to sit and listen and to trust them. And I feel like Keir is close on that. You know he thinks things through and he probably has quite a good overview on stuff and is sort of genuine in what he's trying to argue for and explain. But I also feel that he doesn't command the room or an interview enough to be able to take you on that Blair-like journey round the houses of, a, of, the, of, of an issue until you land on the point that he's going to guide you towards landing on. And I know that I've tried to work with a senior um, politician, um, naming no names, whose arguments were um, hastily put forward and not landing. And, and you knew that this person's arguments were correct, but they were just not getting any, any traction at all, and for lots of reasons that weren't this person's fault. But what I said was, OK, you're going to have to sort of go back a bit and not just deliver the conclusion but explain, first of all, the problem. This is a problem. It's not... Uh, if I tell you the content, it'll tell you who it is, and I don't want to tell you who it is. Um, you know, there's this very serious problem, first of all. It sounds very mysterious, though. Yeah, I know. It's exciting, isn't it? And then there are three <laughs> ways forward that we could go to. If you think it's not this, but it's like it's congestion in central London before the congestion charge, we've got a terrible problem that you can, can't move in London's roads. It's getting worse every year. We can't do nothing. So what are we going to do? We can, and now there are maybe two or three ways forward. We could ban all traffic from central London or we could, you know, say only traffic on weekends or we can, you know, you can come up with your preferred offers, only electric cars or whatever your ideas are. And then you, so you put two or three ideas forward and the third one is the one that you're going to settle on. And so I would argue that for central London we need this new thing called a congestion charge, and that's how we've arrived at the decision to charge vehicles for coming into central London. And I said, you know, I think what you need to do is find a way to structure your responses in a way that always allows you to say, well, look, got a serious problem, got to do something. There's two or three ways forward. You might have thought of this, you might have thought of that. Actually, when I've looked at it, it seems to me this third way is the way we've got to go. So that's why I say, and then give your summary of your conclusion. But if no one's listening to the conclusion when it sits on its own in a discussion, you've got to find a way to be allowed to explain how you got there. Obviously, succinctly and beautifully and, you know, with all the sort of craft that you can come up with. And I don't think, so coming back to what the opposition can do in the face of, you know, successful culture war stirring by these skies is I think um, it's hard if you don't have the presentational skills to show why you want to go to a certain place. It's a bit like what we said mm. before. 
but I would say that would be my sort of starting. If we were sitting in a room trying to help somebody like Keir Starmer, I would say that's where I think you've got to be. You've got to get to a place where people are expecting, know to expect, this is the kind of answer you're going to give. And just all, you know, those are the answers that you rehearse. So you're not going to do, well, get Brexit done, three lines, because it's not really you. Your answers are going to be more, always going to be more sophisticated and nuanced than that because of what, who you are and what you stand for. So let's find a way to do a Keir-style presentation of an argument and hone that. And though that's the way you get the debate to be more sophisticated and take it away from the... You know, never fight on the opposition's... on, on the enemy's territory where they want to have the fight. Fight where you want to have the fight. And if your answer... If your position is, is where... Is, is a nuanced one, then you've got to find a way to be allowed to fight on, on nuanced terrain. What is... Let's say because the, you know, the trans debate is so tricky for like for other reasons in a way, and and it's also very hard to see how you could just say, look, we're just not going to have that conversation. Mm. But let's say on immigration or you know on that aspect of a culture war, what is Labour saying? Cause I don't know what Labour's saying. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I don't really know either, and I know that Yvette Cooper is strong, which I think is good because you close your eyes and think, is she strong? Yes, she is. Um, but I think they're saying they're trying to say look you've done a bad job because immigration is still a problem and because the um, number of asylum cases that have been unresolved is now out of control and you'd have to have an army of people um, working night and day to clear the backlog and what the hell have you been doing and to attack on, on the record rather than on particularly on the issue now and I guess that's their strategy it's sort of it's a kind of a version of what I've said. Is they won't, they're trying not to talk about their record. They're trying to divide us instead. So you can see there's a strong case for saying, well, let's just talk about your record. But what that doesn't do is answer to the public watching the TV and seeing people arriving on boats every single day and knowing it costs a billion quid a year to put people up in hotels and feeling a bit threatened by what that might mean for their kids getting a place in the next school or getting in to see the doctor when there's um, people who they feel shouldn't be there in the queue. That doesn't help them. They're saying, what do you want to, What can you do now about it? And I don't know what they are saying. I think they're probably saying, well, you've got to open up um, legal routes. But you see, if you listen to what the Tories are saying, they're saying they will be opening up legal routes and whether or not they will remains to be seen. Um, but they've certainly closed them. But it's not. It's very hard to differentiate yourself to the extent that you and I don't actually know what they've been saying. Well, I think that's the fundamental thing when you're faced with someone dragging you onto their territory. Do you close it down? Uh, and maybe the only way to do that is to sort of have a policy that matches theirs in some degree, let's say, and then you move it on to another debate. Or do you take a, a principled or different position and try and win that argument you know on any of these issues and of course if you take the time and effort to try and win the argument which has got sounds like the best plan you're having to win the argument on their territory and is that giving up it especially from opposition you know all control of the agenda in the conversation yeah and in a way that for me that's the choice i would probably go for the go for the closing it down and moving it on to another territory mm. if I could. Mm. 
And that means, you know, if you like inverted commas, pragmatic politics. And whether our own side of the fence would stand, you know, could stomach that and stand for that, I don't know. And also, where are you trying to take it to from there? Mm. And that, that I also don't know, because in a way, you know, the, the, the position at the moment is not being the Tories. So how do you drag the conversation somewhere else? I wonder what it would be like if there were a standard framing phraseology around this sort of stuff. So that you would say, they'd say, well, you know, we're going to push migrants' boats back using sonic waves or whatever one of the ideas they came up with. Uh, what are you going to do? You know, you're not doing anything for the British people who are being inundated by this invasion. Millions of people, hundreds of millions, even billions of people or otherwise are going to get onto boats and come across the channel. Uh, what are you going to do? And I just think there ought to be a fantastic, it can't be beyond us, to come up with a phrasing that begins with, well, it's pretty rich coming from you guys whose record on this issue is one of cynical incompetence, you know, find some phrasing because you can apply that, that you could apply to immigration or sewage in our waters or proliferation of food banks or the inability of people to pay their bills or the impossibility of getting childcare and that you can afford. And anyway, you know, if there's a phrasing that could apply to all of these issues, are we supposed to take letters from you guys who've just got this massive backlog of asylum cases actually hit hard on the record you know and you've done x y and z and actually you what you're doing now is yet again is not going to work and actually you know what we see what you're trying to do we see you're trying to divide us you're trying to convince the british people that the reason they can't afford childcare and the reason they can't pay their gas bill and the reason their standard of living has gone down year in year out since 2010 is to do with some guys on boats coming from albania you know and we know, and everybody knows, that's a lie. And when we see you, and we're not going to buy it. So come back to us when you've actually got a record you can point to of some success in this field and in any other field. And if you had that standard framing device with some great turns of phrase that maybe begin to stick, then every time they pipe up, you can say, hang on a minute, what about your record? And hang on a minute, we know what you're trying to do. You're trying to set us against, today it's migrants, and another day it will be lefty lawyers, and another day it will be nurses, and another day it will be whoever you want, you know, striking junior doctors. It will be the, your views on Brit the British workers who, you know, you're in, in print as saying they're, they're the worst idlers in Europe. We know how you, tr how you work. You try and divide us. You try and convince us that this group of people are at fault. British people have had enough of that. We're not having it anymore. So come back when you've got some success to point to. I don't know. I reckon that's... I'd go that way, cause, which is what I was trying to say, I think, last week. I'm not sure if we recorded it or not. But actually, every single time, not just to point to the record, but to point to the culture war, to point to the trick that they're doing, and to say, we're not having that anymore. It's cool, Dan. What do they call, they call it in theatres? Some kid was asked me about it the other day, it's called the kabuki drop, when you drop the curtain to see what's really going on behind mm. the scenes. Yeah. And maybe the kabuki drop is one way to do this, to mm. say, look, look behind what's 
the appearance of this and we'll mm. show you what's really happening. Mm. I mean, that's not a bad, that's not a pl- bad plan. I still think it doesn't get get you from, you've stoked up a fear about people coming. People are worried about it. Labour says, but the Tories are rubbish on it. I'm not sure that... Does answer I'm it. not sure that no. gets you there. No. But certainly the, you know, the Kabuki drop thing certainly would get us a bit further than we are now. Mm. But I don't know whether it gets us on to another convers- conversation, yeah. you know. Um, or do you think, I mean, to be hard on what I just said, maybe is it the case that anyone who can see the Kabuki drop already has seen it, already knows it's a culture war and doesn't need to have it pointed out? And thought of that. I mean, that is a really... I think that's a more sophisticated thought that actually people know it's cynical, but they also are OK with that conversation happening or they think mm. that they want that to be to mm. be aired. Mm. That's a really much more difficult thing, isn't it? Because rather than this be a manufactured thing, it's actually an augmentation of something real behind it. Yeah. Well, I definitely think... I mean, I, I haven't studied the, the data, but I've definitely seen that, as a, a, a general rule and overall, the British people have softened their attitudes towards immigration, particularly lately, when they've seen that there's a real problem in in um, hospitality and restaurants having to close some days a week and pubs, you know, struggling to serve meals and, and all that stuff, and prices going up, everything's so expensive because you can't get staff to come and got to give them loads more money and... I think, you know, and also, I think people do know in their hearts when they can't get seen at A&E that actually a lot of the staff have been frightened away by Brexit. And um, maybe we do need to allow more people to come and actually do the work in that's currently strangled, strangling our economy. And it does seem as though, don't quote me on this, but I, I've, I definitely saw some data that suggested our attitudes were were softening since Brexit to actually understanding that we do need a growing economy needs a growing workforce. But you see, I don't think that answers this specific problem. And the more I think about it, it, I feel like it must be deliberate on the part of the government to close down every legal route so that only, the only way you can get to the UK now is to go on a little boat and risk your life because it's so visually impactful. Um, and, you know, so 50,000 people are coming across on boats. It looks awful. It looks terrible. But in fact, we I think last year we had more than 50,000 Hong Kong Chinese folk who, who we felt obliged to offer visas to arrive, and they arrived in an airport and come here and just go on with their lives. And we've had Ukrainians come and uh, more or less just getting on with their you know, a bit of hosting but then they're getting on with their lives and that hasn't particularly caused any anxiety and that's a lot more than the Albanians on, on boats but seeing people arrive on boats is pretty impactful and you can see there's something there that's wrong and obviously it's wrong um, so we need someone to do something about that well this government has made that happen. So the more I think about it, the more I think it must be actually deliberate because it gives you that... Cult- it, it, it's culture war gold. And I think, you know, what you said just now about Keir and... Which of course, is true. Keir and Rishi kind of looking the same sort of 
sort of affable, centrist, reasonable kind of guy. To a certain extent, I think you're right. But Rishi was, before Brexit, was a, a cool thing. <laughs> uh, when they all switched to it, he was Brexit to the core. And now he's maybe under pressure, but maybe not. He's appointed Suella Braverman to the Home Office and must be endorsing her stuff. He's put Stop the Boats as the the, the big one on his five pledges. So, mm. you know, I think... Um, that's not a centrist, you know, affable, reasonable... No, no, no. That's pretty hardcore. Um, so I think it's quite interesting that he's that he has that image. I understand it completely. I think it's interesting that he has that image. But there's this other side to him that is clearly sanctioning this kind of strategy in the run-up to the next election. And it's really interesting how immediately, when it sort of leaked that they were... Ian Anderson, who defected, um, said... They're gonna, they've told me they're going to fight on culture war and I want no part of it. And then immediately this stuff started happening. And I think we talked a bit about... Um, did we talk about... We recorded some stuff about Lineker, but we didn't put it out on the podcast because we had too much material. But I think the Lineker thing was gold for them as well. It's like, great, here we go. Here is the woke, the blob, piping up until there was no match of the day on the telly. It's like, it's great if we can pick them off one by one. Fantastic for us. But as soon as they club together and none of them appears on Match of the Day, then I think it's phone call to BBC Time and say, actually, can you resolve this? Find a way through. Because um, we can't not have Match of the Day on the telly. Because I think one of the things is, despite all their incompetence, they have, and by all accounts, only just kept the lights on. And they kept the illusion going that, there's nothing really fundamentally going wrong in the United Kingdom, even though in terms of how the shift to the right and the lack of freedoms and the, and the um, embedding of poverty and the taking away of civil rights, it's actually all, it's all going on. But if you, if you choose not to watch the news like my missus does, you might not know any of that. You, know, you can still go down the pub and you can still watch Match of the Day. If you can't watch Match of the Day, something's not quite right. And I just think that's... We've got pushed slightly too far there. Let's row back. Get Lineker back on the telly. And we're only going to pick them off. We can pick them off one at a time. I mean, it's definitely super cynical in the sense that Sunak has clearly gone. What are five things I want to be able to fix and how do I define the problem so that I can fix it? Mm. Um, But that is also just, just politics, isn't it? And you could say equally... Keir Starmer had a completely different position on Brexit and then he had another position on Brexit and now he's got no position on Brexit. And so to bring it back to that sort of question of his positioning, is no position or closing it down the answer to all this stuff? In one way it is the answer. But in order to do that, you've got to go quite a long way to accepting their arguments, haven't you, to degree, or at least find a position that is new, fairly neutral. So what is a woman? How does he answer that? He's going to have to answer it in the end. I don't think now is the time... Some form of, you know, now is not the time to be changing, you know, definitions of this or I something think like that. I think it's should get Sue Gray to do a report. <laughs> I commissioned Sue Gray to tell me what a woman is. All these things. It would be quite wrong for me to say now to prejudice that hard work that that report. She's a respected individual... We'll have to wait and see. 
<laughs> All right, so that's, that's, that's that one sorted out. On, um, on immigration, what the hell do you do to get off that ground? I think, again, you could say, yep, any measure to stop the boats we're okay with, but we want a different conversation about um, our relationship with the world and, and how we see ourselves, and, uh, and part of that is immigration. You could try that. But the thing Labour is, the have never been can... good. They've always been nervous about about immigration. I think that you know, I had a, I've got a relative actually for, who phoned me up. I can't remember what it was. Twenty fourteen. I'd been publishing some some studies that I'd seen. I think were done by UCL that showed that all the myths about immigration, the effect of immigration on our services and on um, cost of benefits and um, all of that stuff, were were just that they were myths. And um, even even in terms of direct competition for low-paid work, like working on building sites, you know, your, your, your Polish plumbers, surely they must have affected the income of, you know, of white van man with his, doing his plumbing. Actually, insofar as it could be measured, maybe that was the only case where directly that incomes might have fallen by something like half a percent or one percent. But in every other field that they looked at, the benefits of having immigration, including public health, were just stratospherically high. Like, you and I are much, much, much richer today for the immigration of the 2000s than we would otherwise have been. And there's a whole host of reasons why, you know, that some of which are obvious. Like, the people who tend to come are people who want to work hard and get paid well. They come and they've had their education somewhere else that we haven't paid for them between the ages of 0 and 18 and then they go home when they want to retire and so we don't pay for their retirement either we just get them in their productive years and their contribution in terms of GDP and tax receipts is fantastic and um, um, compared to the average um, native Brit who I think on average we cost our economy more than we put in um, they were contributing much more than they were taking out. So it's like, if you want to be rich, hope for more immigration. And I, I was publishing some choice excerpts from this on Twitter or Facebook or something, and, and a relative of mine, South London lad, phoned up. Said, you said, your friend Mr Blair, with his immigration, opened up the floodgates and really told me off about, um, you know, couldn't, couldn't believe that I was pro-immigration. And then, you know, the classic of Gordon and the Sky Microphone, calling, um, I've forgotten her name, what was her name? He called a bigot in the 2010. I've forgotten her name for the moment. Um, Mrs Duffy, Gillian Duffy. And, you know, they've been very frightened to say, to put the case, the positive case for, for immigration. And there's no, it seems to me, there's no safe ground for a politician to put that, put those thoughts forward. I, mean, I think that's the thing. When you say culture war, what you actually mean, I think, to a large degree, is places where the Tories have found that Labour doesn't have a position or an answer mm. and therefore it is exploiting that and people's fears at the same time. But it's not, it's not like culture war is a fixed thing. It feels like the culture war is places where Labour has mm. got no position and that so it becomes paralysing. Yeah, you know. that's a really good way of thinking about it. You find where you're weak, basically. And we'll, yeah, we're we'll weak or that. can't find an answer. We'll poke at that. And that's where we'll go. I mean, yeah. that's what you do. If you were in a boxing match with someone, that's exactly what you would do, mm. wouldn't you? You'd look mm. for the weak spot, the place where mm. they're 
haven't thought about it enough or weren't prepared enough. And that's where you that's where you don't attack them at their strong point, you attack them at their at their weak point. Mm. And I don't know what Labour's position is on immigration and I'm not sure we've had a, a strong, clear one that I can remember. Mm. Uh, on let's not call it the trans debate on you know on identity let's mm. say mm. Um, we've all got a, a yearning desire to be progressive and, poli- and positive about it and to do the right thing mm. but blimey can we find a shared position on what the right thing is no we cannot even mm. within progressive groups mm. <laughs> so we only have culture war when we haven't got an answer in a way mm. Mm. Um and if we found an answer, it wouldn't be the culture war anymore, so they'd move it to something else. Mm. So I guess if the question is, should we keep out of the trap of only talking about the things that we haven't got an answer to, mm. yeah, of course we shouldn't fall into that trap. Mm. And the only way out of it is to neutralise it, if possible, uh, and move it onto other ground. That's mm. the only, otherwise you stay in that place. Mm. So... But have you got the stomach for that? Could Keir Starmer say, or anyone, not just Keir Starmer, anyone on the left say, actually, we are going to mirror the Tories' policy on immigration to a large degree. Uh, Where we differ is in the points of principle. And if we were to get in, we would make some different choices. But right now, we're going to just shut you down on that. You know, we're going to agree with you. Mm. On the trans issue, what is a woman? That's even harder again because what could your position be? You can't even agree with their position because they don't, they don't really have one. They're just poking at us. Mm. So, but I guess you would just find a position on it. You would say, here's our, here's our policy, here's our approach, which is probably more conservative, you would say, than, than we might want, mm. but at least shuts down that conversation. But I guess... Yeah, that maybe that's the problem that they they they're poking culture war is the place where we don't have answers to things mm. uh, or or coherent answers mm. to things. Well, it's really interesting that you put it that way because I was going to try and move the conversation on to I was thinking of 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 these issues and what they have in common as being in terms of opposition feeling boxed in or getting boxed in. But actually your phrasing is better. So stuff where Labour really doesn't know, or the opposition really doesn't know how to to find the you know definitive position. Because I wanted to talk about the economic side of things, mm. in which it seems to me uh, Labour has a, a reputation, entirely unfairly, of mismanaging the economy um, and of being overspenders and heavy spenders and heavy borrowers. And look at that note that um, Liam... Um, Burn left behind saying there's no money left which Greg Hand posts I think every day on Twitter and I suppose we ought to say just for the record it's absolute nonsense the uh, the new Labour years were pretty amazing economically they kept borrowing down and managed to keep growing so that they could um, invest in everything we wanted them to invest in schools and hospitals and um, services and just you know pretty amazing really and most years two and a half percent growth which would be a dream now um they got the blame for the the global financial crisis and um even in the storm of of that blame gordon brown managed to actually get the 
the finance ministers of the entire planet to agree a strategy to stop total meltdown. It's pretty impressive, really. And by the time he left office, our economy was growing again. It doesn't really get any better than that. So this reputation is entirely unjustified. And when you compare it to what the Tories have done with a really misguided austerity that really hurt and arguably killed hundreds of thousands of British people, Mm. but certainly hurt us and hurt our institutions and took away any kind of compassion and capacity in our institutions and left us with an NHS that couldn't cope before the pandemic and had no capacity in it so that when trouble hit we were stuffed Um, and the same is true of every kind of investment in in our public realm and their borrowing record is eye-watering compared to Labour I mean it's just it's just stratospherically bad Um, you know the the UK PLC as it were has been downgraded on the um uh, by Moody's and all those all those um, credit ratings agencies I think three three times to, from it away from its AAA rating or if you cut if you go in half rating so you know the sort of outlook um maybe six times I think it depends how you count a rating move uh, but anyway we've we've lost our AAA rating under these guys and our borrowing is just uh, mad um, and we've got nothing to show for it. Everything's in decay and and uh, our people are poorer. So the economic record is chalk and cheese. So it ain't fair, but Labour have the record and the reputation of being the, the spenders and the borrowers. The way that manifests itself, when we see anybody interviewed on the telly from on the Labour side and they say, well, what we would do is this policy, the the, the next question is, how would you pay for it? Mm. which is a question that is never, ever, ever asked of the Tories. They'll just pay for it. They'll just, they, they control the government and that's fine, they'll do that. And no, no policy ever that involves spending money can be articulated in any kind of interview um, without the follow-up question, how would you pay for it? Because we've already got sky-high borrowing and sky-high taxes. So surely you don't want to borrow more and surely you don't want to tax more so how are you going to do this thing you say you want to do? And Labour can only say, well, we've costed it and we'll do it by raising this one particular thing, you know, putting VAT on school fees or stopping non-DOM status. And they say, well, that only, only gets you three billion or five billion. And he said, well, well, yeah, but five billion is enough to make sure that we can train some nurses and give them back their bursaries and, you know, start to address the supply, supply problems in the NHS. He said, but yeah, but what about all the other things you want to do? If you spent that money five times over, yes, but what we're going to do is we're going to make these incremental changes and that's how we, it's about direction of travel and that's how we'll do the things that we want to do. And it sounds, it, by, so by necessity, they're in a place where they can only suggest a few little things because otherwise they've got no story on how they would pay for it. Mm. And Rachel Rees, arguably quite properly, has said, I ain't allowing no policy forward unless I've okayed it and we know how we're going to pay for it. And that means hardly any policies can be put forward. So I, I saw that as a kind of extension of the culture war in, in terms of it's about putting the, presenting an image, I said not cultural, but you know, an issue of presentation because you put a completely unfair picture of, of what Labour have been like in the past... But actually, 
I think your way of thinking about it is more interesting in a way. It's like they they don't know how to say we would be good on the economy. We are we are competent with the economy. You should trust us, and we won't crash and burn the economy. So stop asking us how we're going to pay for stuff because take that as a given. We're going to sort. We're going to be very good with the economy. Mm. Now let's talk about what our policy is going to be. Some of them will involve spending. Some of them won't, but some of them will. And let's talk about them and not not just get stop at the first hurdle. And you, we say, well, we've got an idea. And you say, aha, how are you going to pay for it? Oh, okay, sorry, yeah, let's be quiet again. I mean, the thing is, right, this is a really interesting way to talk about politics. And you would hope that in the world of politics, these sort of conversations are happening, but I just don't think they really are, actually. I think people are so focused on the next day's headlines and, and the next thought. And I'm not saying they're not clever or not, or not thoughtful kind of really playing out these issues and and knocking them around I think enough you know because the temperament of the people and the way that they have to act in politics yeah prohibits it yeah um, I'm, I'm pretty sure the inside you know we you know haven't had to work inside any political party and I'm sure it's brutal mm. I'm sure it's pretty tough and I'm, I work in the media and that's pretty tough um, yeah, I think it's probably horrible. So you're on in defensive mode the whole time. But you see, I think what I think the the answer to this stuff is is to see it as a, present, a presentational issue. So the issue is it's the same with the culture war. Is to look like is how do you come across as and look like someone who can sort this stuff out? How do you look like someone like I don't know I don't know what the answer is on immigration because people are on the move and we've got to do something and you can't just have open open borders but nor is it right to have people drowning on little boats and you know and also we've got to be fair but what's the answer someone's got to go there and sort it out I don't actually want to worry about that stuff I just want someone to sort it I don't know whether it's okay to self-identify as a woman I haven't really thought it through I would like somebody to be to sort that out with fairness and where it could be an issue like whether people are sent to the wrong prison or whatever or allowed in changing rooms that that gets sorted out please and I think all of that and more when it comes to the economy I think actually what you want is to think someone's going to sort the economy out yeah I, totally. you know and so the question really for opposition particularly for the shadow treasury team is how do we look like people who are going to sort it out not what are our what are our specific policies on income, whether we'll put income tax up by 1p or will we introduce a higher rate of tax, whatever things that people wonder about what Labour might do. To get caught up in that stuff is really tricky. But actually where your energy should be is in looking like people who understand it, who are economically literate, who aren't going to go off and do something through ideology that will crash and burn our economy, like trusted, who are listening to business, who are mindful of ordinary people, um, who will redistribute fairly and make sure the poor aren't left behind, who won't frighten off entrepreneurialism, won't frighten businesses the way that we actually want in the country, um, will lubricate trade and do the right thing by our economy. And then, then you can have a conversation about, well, don't don't put top rate of tax up to 60%. That's that's too much because people will avoid it. You know, then you can start getting into the nitty-gritty of it. But before that, 
it doesn't matter what you're saying because you you haven't jumped the first hurdle. And Mm. my suggestion to them would be, and actually has been, until people stop asking you how you're going to pay, you haven't achieved that result. You know, and actually someone like Rachel Reeves has worked at the Bank of England, is an economist, knows her stuff. And actually a big part of their job ought to be making sure everybody knows that. These are people who know how to run the treasury for you. Mm. Great. And that then becomes a platform for the wider policy concerns. If Keir Starmer looks like a guy who's got a sound chancellor behind him, then he can have his ideas and they can put stuff forward. And you know that there's a good sort of accountant behind him and away you go. And that's sort of what the Brown-Blair partnership looked like. And I just think, actually, if you're allowed briefly inside the, the tent, it's so different from being from sitting outside the tent, where you think, Why the fu- where the fuck are the policies? People are frightened. They can't pay their bills. They're skipping meals. I've got to decide whether I eat something or my kid eats something. And there's always that stuff on the margins, and horrible as it is, but this is not a marginal thing anymore. There's, there's millions of families who don't know how to make ends meet. Where are the... I want the policies, and I want hard policies... But actually, when you're inside, you can see actually it's a slightly different worldview. And Mm. and actually what they need to do is not get hooked on policy debate, but actually get the presentation right. Because as soon as I trust you, then I'll listen to what you've got to say. But until I trust you, it sort of doesn't matter. It's just blah, 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 blah. It's just noise. Yeah, in the same way that the more Keir Starmer says I'm a sort of an ordinary bloke, without that feeling about him, it just... It, it doesn't land, does it? I mean, what about this then, Don? Here's the answer, right? To culture wars and to economic <laughs> okay. problems. Okay. Let's, let's give everyone the answer and then we can work back <laughs> from we So the answer is, Keir Starmer is basically your bank manager from Guildford. Right. Right? Okay. That's basically his character. He's reliable, yeah. he's steady, he's not going to mess about. His job in this world is to be CEO of... Labouring that is going to be solid on the economy. And that's all. Mm. You've got Rachel Reeves, who's awesome. You've got Pat McFadden, who's definitely not going to go down the casino and spend all your money. You know, he's yeah. not that bloke. Yeah. Uh, and the rest of the Treasury team all look strong. Every ad, every poster, every party broadcast, everything goes into that pot. Mm-hmm. We're great with entrepreneurs, we're great with big business, we're great with small business, we're great with understanding uh, the economy of the country and what it needs to grow. And forget everything else, don't even talk about it, just talk about that from now till the run into the election when you've probably got a specific plan that might widen it out a bit. People are not listening all that much. We know we've got to repeat things a million times for them even to begin to go through. You're so right that our reputation on the economy is the single most debilitating thing for progressive politics. And we can't make people believe we can run the economy by winning the trans debate. You know, it's just not going to happen. But could you, if you could find that solid ground where people can trust you? Because also trust, once you've earned trust in a particular place, like you say, you're going to trust people in other things. Yeah. But if you ask people to trust you on loads of things and you don't have any trust for them, you, mm. Mm. It's, it's stony ground. So just no more talk about anything else. Forget any other conversation. Just talk about the economy. And what's our idea? 
well, our, our idea is simple. They have smashed, crashed, screwed up, destroyed the economy. Their only hope is to say that we will spend more money than them mm. um, to try and fix their, the problem that they've made. Mm. Let's just change that debate, get them onto our ground, which is, look, we're solid, sensible people, man. The, the head of this party is a bank manager type. Rachel Reeves is your head girl type. Mm. Pat McFadden's your dower, I'm not going to let you spend any money tonight. <laughs> you, you're, on, you, you're good there. Let, you know, set them free and only use them and nothing else. That's, that's what I would do. Um, and then you win, I reckon. That's the answer. <laughs> it, it, you know what? It is the answer. It is the answer. You know, and I think um, I'd love to see, only ever see, Kia with Rachel behind him or Rachel with Kia behind her. Yeah. There you go. So, you know, I know that's politically difficult when, you know, there's internal rivalries and all that stuff I imagine that, that goes on and I have to hasten so I don't know anything specifically about that but I can imagine it's a bit tricky to link arms with someone politically because then what if one of you falls over you know for whatever reason and it certainly was tricky as we now know for Gordon um, and Tony um, but I don't sense that there's any stress like that between those two at the moment but as a strategy you know just thinking of the imagery of it always seeing them together you know here's your as you say here's your ceo and here's the cfo behind and they've got it covered guys and actually at the moment the cost of living and all these other different aspects of the failure of just the terror of falling ill when you can't get into the hospital and there's a i think there's a headline this weekend about um one of the new papers got a headline that says i was so desperate for dental care that I went to Ukraine to get my teeth fixed, the front line and one of the red tops today. Get your head down off but get your teeth fixed. (laughs) What if you said, look, this next election we're applying for the job to run this country's economy. Mm. Right, look at their CV. Mm. If you could present their CV as a CV, it's the worst CV in history. It's the worst CV of any government ever, pretty much anywhere. I mean, maybe Castro... You know, did worse at certain points. I don't know. You know, but I mean, it's pretty. It's pretty high up in the charts of failure, isn't it? Really, in every possible respect. This is a government that actually stuck someone in the job. They smashed up the economy, did a total mess up, did a runner, and then they stuck another guy in. The guy before that one lied about the country, broke his own laws, and then thought he could get away. I mean, this is the worst government that we've probably ever had in this country that I can think of. Mm. That's their CV. Mm. Ours is, bank manager from Guildford, the CEO. Yep, head girl is CFO. A few sensible, dour-looking people who are not going to spend, you know, throw away, mm. try and get a magic money tree. Mm. We are to be trusted. We are serious. We're good at what we do. I want that job. And it's between us and yeah. this, this bunch of muppets. Yeah, well... You've sold me on that. I'd I'd buy that strategy all day long, and I think that. But you know, listen to the way you describe that, right? Even if you don't explicitly say, "Hey, here's our CV and here's theirs," right? And we apply for the job of being trusted to run the economy for you. The words that you use, your phrase book, is full of the words of trust and confidence and security, all of those things. So that it, it starts to give you a vocab that everybody should be using. Find your lexicon. So if your basic take is, okay, we're going to go on the economy, 
because we're strong on that. What were the words that you would use to describe your CV versus their CV? Mm. And use those words all day long, even in different contexts. So you're just subliminally bringing the, your listeners back round to, okay, a bit boring, but I trust them. Great. Sold me on that. There's one other thing I would say, though, which I think um, is to do with this sort of presentation issue, which is, at the moment, what is, you know, thinking about what the Tories can point to and be, call themselves successful, they've got n- nothing, really. What can Keir point to? See, I think he should be pointing to the last Labour government talking about that, but it's complicated and he wasn't there. And so what he's got at the moment to turn to, and you, you, you alluded to it, is success in bringing the party back from a brink of internal rivalry and anti-Semitism, whether or not you believe the Ford report and all of that stuff, um, what was going on in t- in, inside the party that seemed to be pretty difficult. And you could put all of those things into one word and say he's moved the party on from Corbyn. Uh, I have many friends and family who thought Corbyn was great and, you know, the young the youngsters were furious that we didn't get a chance to, to, to see what Corbynism would have looked like. I, I would say, uh, you know, whereas the people who were on the doorstep trying to to win Labour voters, uh, found Corbyn was was a very difficult proposition on the doorstep. Of course he was, yeah. And, um, but whether or not you're in the camp of my, my relatives and uh, particularly the younger generation, some, some of the harder left friends who, you know, thought there was a lot of merit in, in what Corbynism was, whether or not you're for or against Corbyn, like, like him or not, right? Actually, all that has got that's his is he's moved the party on from Corbyn and so he's playing the under new management card when under, when he's under pressure you know what have you done what, who, who are you he said well I've been busy I've been moving the party away from Corbynism and it's been very hard and some people said I could never do it and you know and actually look what I've done in, in a very short space of time I've got them from being unelectable to electable which you know again like him or, or loathe him that is true He's moved the party away from Corbynism and they were unelectable then and they are now miles ahead in the polls. So they are certainly electable. Whether or not they win is a separate matter. That if you if you like Keir Starmer as a dramatic achievement and if you if you liked Corbyn, it, it's a horrible achievement, but it is an achievement. So that's what he talks about when he feels under pressure. Look what I've been busy doing. And I think it is a terrible, terrible mistake not because it's going to alienate because they're already totally alienated those people on the on the harder left but because it reminds people who want to forget Corbyn the people who the very people who you know were put off by Corbyn how recently Labour was in disarray and it, yeah and he was part of that and he was way. part of it yeah. by the way indeed um so he's vulnerable on that because he it, you know he was in he was in there but I think what it boils down to for me is it's a branding issue. It is a presentation issue. If you if you'd taken over Ratner's the week after Jerry Ratner said, we've got all these shots, but we sell tat to mugs, right? We sell rubbish. And totally lost his control of his business. And you you come in as the new CEO. You could say you've got about a week, I reckon, or two weeks to say, well, it's kind of true. You know, that was a bit of a disaster, sorry guys, but we're going to change things. 
and you could say that was true then you know we did sell tat but now we're getting some new stuff we're getting rolex and we're getting some high-end chic jewelry in and we're, we're changing the product so if you come along to ratner's now with me as ceo you're going to get much much better much higher quality yeah you've got that space for about you know let's say not two weeks but two months because by then people have got to found that out for themselves they've got to come into it oh that's really nice that and that's a bit expensive and that's ratners ain't what it used to be is it and they get used to ratners the new brand and forget the old one and then the last thing you want to do is pop up at Christmas and say, hey, you remember when we were rubbish and we sold tat and we laughed at you for buying our stuff? We're those guys, um, but we've got newer stuff in now. Oh, hang on a minute, don't remind me. No, you've got to move on from it. You've got to, you don't trash your own brand. You repair it, yeah, but then move on. And then never that stuff never happened. And the way, the way to do that is the way the Tories have done it. Trust and quiet, who? 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 Yeah. Oh, don't worry about that. It's all under control. They've forgotten those guys. And that's what we should be doing. We should be saying, are Labour any good? Of course we are. Do you remember the 2000s when we remember hospitals and schools and Sure Start and all those things? Corbyn, I'm afraid, has to be erased from the lexicon for now because it was damaging. And And all you're doing is serving to remind... You might think you've done well to move on from it, but all you're doing is just reminding people that not very long ago... I didn't trust Labour. So brand management is never trash your brand. Yeah, that's... So one fundamental is that you've rightly identified is the economy. The con- it's the economy, stupid. And that that's the battleground. Now, however we get on to it, who cares? We're going to get on to it. And then the brand thing is so crucial because your offer is part of the definition of not being that previous guy, isn't mm. it? You know, when Pochettino comes in as manager, he doesn't talk about what the last manager did for three months. No. He says, here's my new way of doing things, and it's implied that that's a different way, and it feels good, and it feels yeah. um, fresh, and that's exactly, as you say, how it should be. So, I mean, it, harking back to an era when we were a basket case, which Keir was part of, and it's so complicated and troublesome, is just, it's suicidal. And then the Tories, their best bet, in a way, is just to separate themselves, as you say, and distance themselves from all of that, which they are now actively doing, you know, and actually, like, if I was Sunak, I'd be hoping for a by-election and hoping for a chance to, for the public to vent their anger on Boris... And he just says nothing about it, and he's moved on. He's, he's over here, he's somewhere else. The further away he is from that without ever talking about it, the better. So that is that is 100% right. You know, we are... If we were Ratners, we're, we're now quality. But the way we show that is by how we behave and what we offer going forward, not about talking about what we used to be and what we're not anymore. Yeah, but if you if you put that to MPs, their memories of the doorstep of 2019 are still visceral, you know. But, you know, when you go on the doorstep, people just say, what about Corbyn? And I said, well, then, in that case, definitely don't remind them about Corbyn. That makes me think all the more you should not be saying, hey, we dealt with Corbyn. Just 
stop talking about him. Because yeah. he didn't win. He didn't become prime minister. It caused you problems on the doorstep. It is amazing that you've moved the party on. But that's nothing to... That's n- not helping you in not helping your case at all. If you want to refer back to Labour in the past, refer back to when they were in government and get, did good stuff that people liked. Talk about that and give the sense that you would prioritise those things again. The other day, Alex Ferguson was asked his view on the race between Man City and Arsenal and who would win. And he just said, I'm not interested. <laughs> and everybody went, respect, mate. You know, he's a Man United guy. That's mm. all he cares. He doesn't mm. care about anything else. Mm. And I thought that was fantastic. And then the other day on social media, I don't know why, probably because I'm such a centrist, up, up popped uh, a clip from the Commons from Corbyn's time. And Corbyn says, I've just been to the European Parliament and I just want to share with the House what they said to me. And then he paused, and one of the Tory backbenchers shouted out, Who are you? (laughs) And the the whole place (laughs) fell about laughing, including all the Labour front bench. (laughs) And and that should be us, shouldn't it? Yeah, who who was that bloke? We don't even know who he was, you know. Yeah. Who was he? Yeah. Um, That's got to be right, because otherwise you're you're torturing yourself and you can't move on and... Actually, any association with him is not going to win you on the win you ground on the economy, is it? It's just never, ever, ever going to happen. But it's just basic brand management. I think for him personally, he came late to politics. He's a, he's a new boy, suddenly the head of head of house, and he needs to. I think he really feels the need to show his bona fides, to show what he can do and what he's done, and it is an achievement good if you like him and not so good if you like Corbyn but it is, it is definitely defying gravity in a certain kind of way so you can understand why you'd be quietly pleased with yourself but maybe the best way to be quietly pleased with yourself is quietly <laughs> and that's a wrap you've been listening to Electioneering with Mark Lucas and me Dominic Mingella Electioneering is an Island Pictures production and our audio ident is composed by Andy Price <laughs>